anybody who wants to go on one of their ships, they would be glad to have on board because they're very confident. And, and this is backed up by their data about, you know, repeat business that once you try it, you almost certainly come back. And you might come back once, you might come back twice, you might come back 10 times, you might come back 20 times. To say that, well, it's luxury always does better and there's no, there's never any concessions in cruise prices and therefore, you know, the quality of the cruise is, is not going to be compromised. I don't think you can take that for granted. This has me like weeping a little bit for our society. Now travel is just part of your identity and who you are. I mean, and we put it, put our sort of experiences in the hands of companies to sort of nudge us this way and that to optimize our entertainment experience or our cultural experience. Welcome to Behind the Idea, where we discuss ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to find out what makes good investment analysis work. I'm Daniel Schwarzman. And I'm Mike Taylor. Today we're following up on Royal Caribbean in light of last week's podcast about the company and its recent acquisition of Silver Seas. We're reviewing the situation with friend of Behind the Idea, Paul Brady of Condé Nast Traveler, as well as the author of the original article, Spring Mill Research. We're going to see whether cruises are sailing into the spotlight or whether there's stormier weather on the horizon. And as a quick disclosure, neither Mike nor I have any positions in any of the companies listed. So without further ado, Paul, welcome on. Thanks so much. So, Paul, what do you think of the Silver Seas deal overall? I think this news with the Royal Caribbean and Silver Sea is, is a really big deal for uh, the cruise industry. And it kind of shines a spotlight on a part of the travel industry that's maybe a little undercovered in general, which is which is cruising, but something that's really exciting in general for the traveling public. At Condé Nast Traveler, we see cruises as a really exciting, developing sector of the travel industry and one that we're really interested in, in covering. And as a matter of fact, sort of coincidentally to this deal, but we just come out with, um, with our cruise edition for this summer. So the whole issue for this summer, all about cruising and various cruise lines, ways to travel better uh, by ship, and uh, sort of all of the great experiences you can have on the water. Wow. Nice plug of your issue. <laughs> That's great. Good to get that in at the top of the show, Paul. But yeah, so but we were talking before the show a little bit. Uh, I want to press you a little bit on the specifics. Daniel and I came away with the impression that, you know, Carnival might have overpaid here. And one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you was to kind of, if you could, make a case for, if we're looking at this deal and we think maybe that, that Carnival could have overpaid by as much as 50% for its stake in Silver Seas, what would the rationale be for paying, up, for paying a premium for, for this relationship, for this acquisition? Sure. You know, I, I don't have a ton of expertise in the sort of M&A side of this, but certainly Silver Sea is a premium cruise brand. So they operate uh, a bunch of very nice, luxurious vessels that go to really interesting places. I think at last count, they had something like more than 800 ports that they go to. One of their ships actually just this week has gone north of sort of the 80 degrees of latitude. So close to the North Pole, they go to Antarctica, they go to places literally all around the world uh, in true luxury. You know, they have butlers on board, they can take care of everything for you. It is quite like just the best or one of the best cruise lines out there in terms of luxury. And so what you're getting, I suppose, when you're, when you're you know, acquiring a, a big stake in that is not just access to those ports, not just access to those ships, but also access to those consumers. You know, these people that are spending $800, $900 uh, or $1,000 a night for, you know, one week, a two week, a three week cruise. So they're, they're offering true luxury service to a very upscale clientele. And I don't think that that's something that, that Royal Caribbean necessarily had or necessarily had a lot of. Uh, so, there's some value there, I would I would think, in terms of the, the customer base that you're getting access to. How unique is that? 80 ports, is that a lot? And also, you know, how, how many of those are kind of unique assets ex that are exclusive to Silver Seas? And what are the mechanics around operating in different parts of the globe? 
Sure. Well, eight eight hundred. Um, eight hundred. And, and that's yeah, yeah, eight hundred. And that is a lot. I mean, you know, a lot of cruise lines the past couple of years have have really been emphasizing the destinations that they take you to. So I think to to step back just briefly. For a long time, uh, I think the cruise industry was all about what you can do on board the ship. And, you know, there's sort of these cliches about the water parks and the slides and the shows and everything. And and those are very valuable for some parts of the cruise business. And and a lot of families in particular, but cruisers in general, are are super interested in that stuff. But what we're hearing more and more at, at kind of as travelers, this idea that, you know, it's really the destination that's leading. Like, where can this boat take me? And where can I go on this vacation um, that's maybe difficult to see uh, on its own? Or it's a, it's a certain itinerary that's interesting. You know, like I was on a cruise earlier this year that left Venice and sailed the Adriatic down through the Mediterranean and ended up in, in Malta. And we, along the way, we stopped a lot of places in Croatia, Montenegro, we stopped in Corfu, Greece. And these are all really fascinating ports that I don't think are sort of surprising as cruise destinations. A lot of cruises visit them, but I'm not going to fly on my vacation to spend a week in Montenegro. Uh, but doing this cruise itinerary that showed me this Adriatic coast in a sort of holistic way it was the perfect way to see that part of the world. And so that sort of access and logistical expertise is one of the benefits of traveling by ship. And so when you think about Silver Sea having access to 800 plus ports around the world, that means you can really go anywhere. And if you're the kind of person who likes the Silver Sea experience, you know, you like champagne and caviar in the evening, but walking tours during the day or adventuring you know, to uh, deserted beaches on a Zodiac or whatever it may be that Silver Sea can arrange. And them having a broad network of ports where they have good contacts, network of local guides, relationships that allow them to get, you know, good birthing times when they need to be in and out of port. That's a lot of value that, that Silver Sea is going to offer, you know, from a business perspective as well. Wow. I, I just wanted to jump in on something we talked about last week. Mike said he had emailed with you, and one of the things you'd, that had come up is this idea of the births and of the limited births. Could you just explain a little bit more how that – the births are the actual places to dock in the port, or are they the births on the boat? And just kind of how, how is that – like, is there a acquisition of just getting those births? Is that an important part of this deal as well? Yeah, for sure. I mean, in in the same way that, you know, airlines have to compete to to get takeoff and landing slots, you know, at a given airport, you know, there's there's certainly a capacity constraint in certain ports on the number of ships that can come in and come out. And, you know, in Miami, for example, Norwegian is building a new cruise terminal to to create a better experience on shore for passengers getting on and off the ship. And okay. and you see that all around the world. And and certainly there's some capacity constraint that and also the relationships, you know, the shore side relationships, you know, having the guides, having the, ne- the transportation networks, you know, what do you do with the people when they get off the ship? You know, do they get on buses or vans or, you know, can they walk easily to and from the port to the sort of points of interest? All of that is stuff that the cruise line will have the logistical expertise to handle and is certainly valuable. But I think the more important capacity question is just simply, yeah, how many beds are available? How many ships are there? How can we put a growing number of people who are interested in cruises onto cruise ships? There are a very small number of places in the world that you can build a large cruise ship and they are full. Um, And you hear cruise lines executives talk about this all the time, that, that they're ordering ships for 2022, 2023 delivery. And so there really aren't that many you know, beds available in the world. And when demand is going up, you know, they're, they're expecting more than 25 million people to take a cruise this year globally. And that's up, you know, almost double. I think it's over the last 10 years. So there's a surge in, in consumer interest, but not necessarily in the number of people that can go on a ship. And so, yeah, for sure. One of the great things about Silver Sea is they've got a fleet of ships that can take high paying customers, you know, starting from today. Right. I have two notes so far. First one is that I, as soon as you mentioned it, Paul, I Googled the Adriatic Sea because I did not know where it was. So I'm glad that you're on the podcast. I think it's going to be helpful to our listeners. 
And second, Daniel, I think, has a comment about Montenegro. Well, no, I, I was just, I, I typed to Mike that, you know, a week in Montenegro is a wonderful decision to take. And I think the, I, I think part of my perspective may be because I live in Europe. And so I get to see, see the, like, see these places in Croatia or whatever without as much of a without a transatlantic flight or whatever but i that's that's something that occurs to me is that there is obviously a growing market of travelers who and and somebody made a comment on this and maybe as we're trying to understand why demand is doubling somebody made a comment on our article saying look i love this as an opportunity to visit places that i'm not sure i want to go to but i can get a taste of and maybe that's something unique about a cruise that you can get a taste it's not a bus tour or a plane tour where it's, I don't think, but like where you have to do a lot of irritating travel, but cruises seem to be more of a thing. What, what do you think is sort of driving, driving that sort of interest and in driving people to decide rather than, as you put it, like going on a week somewhere or doing a different type of travel? What, what is, how is our cruise lines capturing more of the market or is it just as we talked about last time, travel continues to grow and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think there are a lot of factors influencing it. And, and number one is, is exactly this idea of sort of you know, sampling a destination. You know, one of, my, one of my colleagues took a short cruise around India, actually, for a, for a story in this, in this cruise edition that we came out with. And she, there was this sort of grappling with the idea of going to India and sort of, as she put it, skimming the surface, like, here is this sort of bucket list destination that everybody thinks of as this sort of ultimate place to spend a month or two months or years, or, or you might not ever be able to fully comprehend it or understand it as a destination. And she's just going to dip in for a few hours over the course of, you know, a week. Like, how do you, how do you square that with this idea of wanting to really, you know, understand a place? And a lot of the passengers she spoke with on the cruise are saying, well, look, I'm not here to understand the history of India. I'm here to, see how I like Mumbai and if I want to come back or not. Like, and, and along the way, by the way, there will be a nice cold bottle of water for me on the bus. That's going to take me to the uh, place where I'll have the nice guide who will give me, you know, a great tour and a lot of background information. Or if I don't want to do that, okay, no obligation. You can explore on your own. I mean, I think that's one of the maybe misconceptions is the right word about cruising that, that you kind of have to follow this set itinerary worth every minute is programmed. And, and I think that maybe that used to be true on, on certain lines or something, but it certainly hasn't been my experience. And it certainly hasn't been the experience of, of my colleagues that you can kind of make your own fun and make your own itinerary as long as, you know, obviously you're following, you know, whether, what time the boat arrives and what time the boat leaves, but you can kind of do your own thing and, and get a taste for a place. Sure. But also, you know, see a lot of the place, you know, like I went to Kotor Montenegro, which is a lovely town, but is about, you know, the size of my neighborhood here in New York city. And so, you know, do I need to be there for four days and spend three nights in a hotel? No, I felt like I got a real nice grasp on it and, and took some great pictures. I had a wonderful lunch. I did a little like hike up to the fortress at yep. the top of the hill. And, okay. and that was like everything I needed to see. And, and, I would never claim to be an expert on Montenegro now, but I did get a taste of it and have a wonderful experience. And I, I think that quest for experiences is, is really what's driving some of the interest in, in cruising. It's, um, it's a very easy way to travel. You unpack once and get to see a bunch of different places. Mm -hmm. A lot of the logistics are handled for you. You don't have to worry about navigating public transportation or, or getting, you know, getting lost in a cab unless you know, unless you want to do that, you don't have to worry about what are you going to have for dinner. You don't have to be constantly taking out all sorts of different currencies unless, you know, you're a big shopper and you want to pay cash for things. But, you know, for example, on my trip, I paid with credit card almost everywhere I went. And so it was, again, a very easy way to see a lot of stuff and have a lot of experiences. And that's really, I would say, the top line trend in, in travel in general is this idea that doing experiences, having memories, creating sort of memories with your family or friends or, or yourself or whoever, you know, it is that you like traveling with, you know, that's the big motivating factor. It's no longer this idea that I need to tick off all these boxes or see the 
great sites in the world. It's all about having experiences and creating memories and then, yeah, sharing them on social media. So. <laughs> yeah, the, the, those steps in Kotor are, that's a fun, fun hike you have to have to do when you're there. Yeah, and see, and easy for you, you know, for, for you, it's a short flight, right? And, and uh, like a short hop. And, and so for us, in, you know, over here in the States, it's sort of this, this big, well, I have to fly transatlantic and then I have to change planes, probably at like Heathrow, which is a big mess. And then I get to Zagreb, which is like maybe not that great. And then I'll take a bus to Dubrovnik, which is probably good for like 36 hours at most. And like, right. that's a high bar for me to go to Dubrovnik. Whereas if it's a part of this bigger itinerary and we get there in the morning and I can wander around before it gets too hot and then I can have a nice lunch and see a few things and sit at a cafe and then get back on the ship as we sail off to the next great stop, that's how I want to do Dubrovnik. And that's like the right amount of time to spend on it for me. And that is, I think, what the cruise offers is this ability to see interesting places quickly and easily and without the sort of expense or burden of like, oh my God, I have to like create a whole trip around this. So since there's all this stuff changing about the cruise industry and changing about consumer preferences, and it's not a monolithic experience anymore, can you give us your breakdown of how Royal Caribbean and Silver Seas are different and how different companies in general are kind of what their reputation is or what, you know, who are the big players and what, what are, how are their business models different from each other? Sure. I mean, you know, the number one player is, is Carnival Corporation, which owns uh, a ton of brands and something uh, around the order of 50% of, of the entire global cruise market. So they're kind of the, you know, the, the, the biggest elephant in the room to, to think about. Uh, and then Royal Caribbean, of course, you know, that they have a number of brands as well, but Royal Caribbean would be their first, you know, sort of, I guess, flagship brand. And it's lately, I think, become known for these really massive ships, which generate a lot of media coverage for sure. You know, you're talking about ships that can carry more than 6,000 passengers do what I would say are sort of like introductory itineraries, you know, Caribbean trips or, or trips in the Mediterranean with um, that are very family friendly, that are very group travel friendly, which is another trend that I think is is a real thing, you know, not one of these phony trends that we kind of spout, but, <laughs> but like a re- people wanting to travel in bigger groups, whether that's their families or their friends or, or uh, you know, bachelor parties, bachelorette parties, um, alumni groups, all these sorts of things. Like, how do you plan a vacation for 30 people who are coming from seven different cities? Well, you go on a cruise they can take care of a lot of a lot of that trouble for you and also meet people's different budgetary needs. So on a really, really big ship, like one of the Royal Caribbean ships, you know, some people can stay in the entry level cabin. Some people can stay in a suite. Some people can splash out for the super baller suite if they want to do that. And yet you're all kind of vacationing together and traveling together and you have meals together. Um, you can do activities during the day that suit your particular interests, or you can do those together. So I think, you know, kind of off topic, <laughs> off, or not to answer your question directly, but, you know, that's another thing that's driving this and, and a reason that you see these really big ships. So I think one of the things that Royal Caribbean was, was missing, though, you know, they do have this brand, Azamara, that, you know, I think has been written about on Seeking Alpha as, as, as a premium product. But Silver Sea is a really luxurious brand and, and offers a really high standard of, of quality. And I think what you see in, in the cruise business is similar to what you see in the hotel business in terms of having all of these different brands at different price points, offering different experiences, so sort of micro-targeting segments of consumers. So in the same way that you know Marriott has its 30 different brands, these cruise holding companies are going to have a variety of brands that are appropriate for, you know, not just different consumers, but even the same consumer on different types of trips. So, you know, this is the trip I want to take with the grandkids. I'm going to maybe do something a little bit more affordable that and bring everybody together, or I'm going to go to Antarctica once. And so I want to really splash out and do something amazing. So I'm going to go with Silver Sea and you can kind of follow the same consumer and offer them different things for different types of trip. So I think it's an interesting strategy. 
So what's one of your, what's a fake trend? <laughs> what's a fake trend? I, I probably like mixology classes. Like, I don't think there's a lot of people in the general public who are like, man, I really want to go on vacation and learn how to make a, a, a really elaborate cocktail. Uh, I think they want to, I think they want to drink them, but I, but I don't think they necessarily want to hang out, uh, you know, with, with a, a mixologist and learn how to do that. Um, I would say that's a fake trend. Uh, all right. Behind the idea listeners, you got it here first. The mixology trend is, is suspect, suspect, according to Paul Brady. We only give you the deep insider insight here. Awesome. Good example. Uh, so I think it's a good time to kind of talk a little bit and press on some of the points you made in the last podcast. One of my points was that there's been a cultural shift in, in, in favor of embracing the corporate travel experience or the regimented travel experience. And I don't know how well that gels with your comments about uh, you know, the the Mumbai and India crews and taking a surface level look at something where historically maybe people felt obligated to go deeper. So what do you think of my argument that, you know, the David Foster Wallace essay of, that sort of satirizes the cruise experience is not something that really would work today. We had that Michael Ian Black story in the New York Times that I think basically confirms my theory that people are fine with being uncool and no longer feel like they need to have a kind of authentic individualized travel experience. What do you think? I think that people still want to have an authentic, interesting experience that feels like it was customized for them. But I agree with you that they're less worried about sort of the street cred or having that experience come at the expense of great inconvenience or heaping amount of, of inconvenience and pain. <laughs> like there's no, like that, that connection between authenticity and like ruggedness, uh, you know, I don't know that that's necessarily still a thing in the way that it probably was in that David Foster Wallace era. One of the interesting things about this Silver Sea deal and, and Silver Sea in general is that it's part of this sector of cruise called expedition cruising, right? So it's smaller ships, they go more interesting places. And that is one of, I think, the most exciting and dynamic parts of the business right now where you see a lot of activity, Seaborne, which is one of the Carnival Corporation brands, just announced this week that they're going to build two new expedition ships. Countless other cruise lines have expedition ships on the way in the next few years, and, and not just one or two, but dozens, I would say, over the next probably four or five years of these expedition ships. And I think that that is really driven by a change in, in consumer demand. Like People want to go do interesting things that their neighbors haven't done. And if it's nice, like that's a bonus. Again, it's like these, all of these people that kind of grew up roughing it around Europe or, or backpacking or like kind of, you know, hosteling their way through South America, you know, they have a little more money, they have a little more experience, and they, they're a little bit older. And there's no longer this, I think, demand that you, you know, suffer for your art, right? <laughs> like, it's possible to have a cool, interesting experience and also have that cold glass of wine after a long day of sort of walking around, you know, a temple complex in Southeast Asia or something. So if you can have both and if you can afford both, which a lot of people can apparently, why not? And, you know, fundamentally, I think there's still this hunger for doing interesting things and having, you know, cool stories to tell at dinner parties. It's just that, you don't have to kind of suffer for it anymore. And there's not this sense of like, well, it wasn't really, really difficult for you. So it doesn't count. People don't seem to care anymore. People just want to know that it's possible to go see interesting things and learn a bit about the world. And I mean, thank God there's still that hunger to, to actually get out and see things for yourself. 
I wonder if The Beach, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, was the peak. Came out in 2000. It's about him going to Thailand and, like, he's the ultimate adventure traveler. Going around, they have, like, got, he goes spearfishing as a shark. It's not a very popular movie. Uh, but <laughs> but they, they, like, sneak through this, like, drug dealer field. They have to jump off a waterfall to, like, get to this special beach. It's popular at my house. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, dude, I love the beach. I think it's so good. He drinks the snake blood. I think that's over. I think that kind of gets to your point. I just really wanted to drop a beach reference. Um, yeah, for I sure. I think, I, I think of the beach, you know, the, the, at least the novel, as, as that was the foundation for, for the movie, as, as the ultimate Generation X kind of, kind of novel. You know, there's this, like, weird nostalgia for the era of Vietnam. There's this like backpacker culture. You know, in the movie they, they spend time at like an internet cafe, which like talk about a business model that exploded. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's all of this sort of like Gen X, right? Like how raw can you get? And, and there's this affinity, right? Between like raw and rough and like authentic and quality. And I do think that the culture has shifted away from that in, in part because there's just so much information available, right? Like you don't, you don't have to dog ear the page of a guidebook necessarily anymore, even if that guidebook might have the best advice, you know, there's just so much information available to us. And I think that that's one of the, not maybe a foreground reason that, that cruises are, are growing in popularity, but almost like a subconscious reason that, the cruise line will tell you where to go and what time dinner is and which guide to go with and what sites are worth seeing on your day in port. And there's this not control, but level of suggestion and sort of reliability. Like we got this, we're going to take care of the hard stuff for you. So you just have to enjoy yourself that I think is really appealing to people in a deep way in an era when we're sort of overwhelmed with information and you know whether or not to believe that information or what what's true what's not true what who can i believe what's a good place i don't want to get ripped off i I don't want to make a mistake on my vacation because i only get 10 days of vacation a year how can i be sure it's going to be good you know going with a reliable established cruise line is a way to solve a lot of those problems and and i don't think if you ask consumers that they would directly say that's why they chose a cruise but i think it's it's somewhere in the background, like influencing people's decision to decide to go this way instead of trying to hack together the whole week long trip themselves with a bunch of, you know, hard to understand vagaries on TripAdvisor. That's really interesting. And it seems like it's, I, I, I sort of wanted your sense on, you have all this crowdsourced information on TripAdvisor or Yelp or whatever else you have Airbnb where you don't even have to go to the hotel Obviously, with the original online travel agencies, you're kind of disintermediating the need to go to a travel agent to book flights. Like, is this, do you, do you find that this desire to turn off the noise and just find somebody you can trust to do, like, is that a, I don't know, I just wanted to tease that out a little bit more, how those two things, because on the one hand, like Airbnb is doing well and booking is doing more and more apartment listings on their website as well. Like on the one hand, it seems like we want travelers want that sort of ability to control their trip. And on the other hand, like you're saying, there's this idea of relinquish control and just enjoy yourself. How do you sort of, I mean, maybe I I don't want to ask you to repeat yourself, but like, is there anything else there to kind of explain that dynamic? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I'm going to try to have it both ways here and, and say like people do want choice and choice is obviously good for consumers. And, and and I think that most travelers do want the option of saying, like, I want to do this or that or that, or I want to fly this airline or that airline, this cruise line or that cruise line. But, yeah, at a certain point, like, planning a vacation is hard, right? I mean, there's a lot of variables to consider, you know, price being a, a major one. But, you know, who's going to come and how many days and where should we go and what's important and, and what's important to our family and, you know, what's important – to, to not see and, and where can we go when, you know, thanks to technology and, and airlines and cruise lines, like we can, you can literally go anywhere. So 
you very quickly go from, oh, it's great that I have all this choice to like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that, you know, what cruises help you do is narrow that universe a little bit. And, and I don't think there's any accident that the major way that cruises are still sold today is with the help of a, of a human travel agent who can help you navigate these sort of complexities of, you know, even though I'm saying a cruise, a cruise vacation is, is easier, there's still a lot of complexity there. You know, what stateroom, what itinerary, when do we go, what ship, what cruise line, and a human travel agent can help you figure that out before you get to the real part where everything really is sort of handled for you. And I, I think that having a lot of choice, but then getting the help of, of a travel agent and a cruise line to narrow it back down to a, a sort of digestible, understandable itinerary, that's the result of people wanting, I think, an anecdote or an antidote to, um, to everything that's been made available to us on the internet. Yeah, that's really interesting. It sounds to me, based on what we read in sort of the conversation here, it sounds to me like it's not the demographics on cruises are still pretty diverse. Like you're ranging from younger people to retirees and families, sort of. Is that a fair state, which would obviously be bullish for the industry? Is that a fair thing to say that it's pretty widespread and um, across demographic fronts, the trend? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I think if you look at cruising, you know, the whole global industry, there is a great variety of people who want to go on a cruise or and who do go on cruises. Mm-hmm. I think if you narrow it down and you start looking at specific brands or specific, uh, you know, types of itineraries, I, I think you start to see, you know, more distinctive demographic groups. So, you know, if you look at low-cost cruise, cruises in Alaska, I think you're going to see a, a much more sort of singular type of person taking that trip. Right. Um, whereas if you look at you know, people who are sailing on cruise ships, it's going to be quite diverse. And and I think that's to be expected, you know, sort of to what we were talking about earlier, this idea that, that I think the cruise, the major cruise companies are trying to offer a variety of different experiences to different, to both different consumers and the same consumer taking different types of trips, right? So they're trying to tailor all of these brands so that you know exactly the sort of experience that you might get should you come aboard. And then you can just pick and choose off that shelf of, of you know, experiences ready to go. One of the big challenges for the industry, and, and the executives talk about this all the time, so they, they definitely know it's a challenge and they definitely are trying to address it, is, is getting more people aboard. And it's very easy to think of cruises, you know, you say like a 6,000 person ship or, you know, 25 million people are cruising, but you compare that to this, you know, the World Bank data that said more than a billion with a B people are traveling in general. The cruising is still a very, very niche part of the overall travel industry. And, and what all of the cruise companies are trying to do is get more customers on board. Sure, more younger customers, but they would take anybody at this point. Like anybody who wants to go on one of their ships, they would be glad to have on board because they're very confident. And, and this is backed up by their data about you know repeat business that once you try it, you almost certainly come back. As long as you've gone on the right type of trip for you, you'll come back. And you might come back once, you might come back twice, you might come back 10 times, you might come back 20 times. So they're trying to develop these long-term relationships with consumers as early in life as possible, obviously, and then be able to offer those consumers interesting trips throughout the consumer's lifetime, right? And once that consumer has kids, then we'll put them on this ship. And once those kids get into college, we can take them on this ship. And once those kids have their kids, we can take the whole family on this other third brand that offers something great for multi-generational travelers. And that, you know, for the cruise lines would be kind of the holy grail and what they're, what they're trying to get to. Because certainly they think that even though capacity is limited and, and even though I think pricing is not exactly where they want it to be in terms of, you know, it's, it's too low, their biggest challenge is just getting people on board. And, and I think they're making some progress there because of these sort of, I think, cultural shifts that people are willing to embrace the cruise vacation in a way that maybe they wouldn't five or 10 years ago. I have one more question, Paul. The Royal Caribbean stock dropped about 70 to 80% in 2008. So it got 
hammered as you know the financial crisis unfolded and the recession took place. What's your feeling about you know we're long into a fairly friendly economic situation here in the U.S. and sort of globally? What do you think about the industry's vulnerability to downturns? Well, I think it's more vulnerable than other segments of the travel industry, right? People don't take, well, for the most part, people don't take business cruises. You know, they take business trips, but they, but they generally are not conducting business on the seven-day sail, you know, around the around the Caribbean. In general, you, there are people that do that, though. So I think it's... I, I would do that. Cruising. Sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, do, I do think that cruising is more vulnerable to to a, you know, a broad economic downturn than other parts of the travel industry. That, that being said, we feel like at kind of as traveler that people have made this fundamental shift in the last 10 years since the last crisis, which is to say travel is no longer a luxury. It's travel, not vacation. It's a part of people's identity. It's a part of their lifestyle. It's a part of just the way that they are. And so I think that there has been a broader cultural shift that has sort of made people consider travel not a luxury, but a necessity. And they may be willing to, you know, sell the car or forgo buying another car in order to have the vacation. They might not upgrade their housing situation in order to take the trip. I think that people are going to be more willing in future downturns to keep spending on travel and trim elsewhere um, than they than they were in the last downturn. Hey, I could be wrong, but I do think that people value travel in a really deep way that they might not have in previous downturns. Hmm. Or maybe, you know, maybe wealthy people won't be as affected by the downturn and there's a lot of really wealthy people nowadays and that's part of a buffer against a broad-based downturn. It'd be interesting to see more about what what type of income levels have been drawn into the cruise industry or into cruising as customers. Yeah, it's a really interesting point for sure. I think there are, there are certainly a lot of wealthy people who spend a lot on cruise vacations. You know, when I was on this cruise two months ago, I was talking to a couple who sail a couple times a year and they're spending probably $15,000 per cruise a couple times a year. And they've done close to dozens of these trips in addition to all of the other travel that they're doing, you know, to visit their adult children around the country or take a quick trip to see some museums in Europe or fly down to Florida to spend some time in the sun. That, that's all in addition to this, you know, 30 grand roughly that they're spending every year on cruise vacation. And so, you know, are those people going to keep spending uh, in a downturn? Uh, you know, I'm not sure, but uh, what you see, you know, you see this investment at the top end of the market, right? Silver Sea being a premium, luxury, expensive product for wealthy people. And I think you don't see as much sort of excitement or, you know, sort of M&A activity at the lower end with, the, with the se- what the sector calls the contemporary, you know, those large sort of mass market ships where it's all about, you know, sweet, squeezing a tiny bit out of every room on, on, on super thin margins. So, yeah, could it be a situation where we see a, a broad downturn, but the luxury end of the cruise market sustains you know the interest of a small subset of wealthy people sure i'm sure that i'm sure they would love that <laughs> <laughs> that couple who, who wouldn't fun. want that forecast to come true <laughs> <laughs> daniel you got anything else no that's the, no no that that was great that was lots lots as always lots to chew on this has me like weeping a little bit for our society i kept thinking like as paul was talking <laughs> Now travel is just part of your identity and who you are. I mean, and we're just, you know, we put it, put our sort of experiences in the hands of companies to sort of nudge us this way and that to optimize our entertainment experience or our cultural experience. Uh, it just, 
man, if a recession hits and it's bad, I feel like a lot, if that's all true, that a lot of people are going to be like really sad when some of those experiences disappear from their, uh, <laughs> from their menus. And I don't know. We're becoming, it's just happening. The world is so different than it was 20 years ago. I sound like an old guy now, but that's fine. Like, we're, did you, you know, another movie reference, Wally, when they're all on that giant spaceship and they're just being like carted around by, basically, that spaceship is a giant cruise ship and they all are in these like floating hovercrafts and they're overweight and they don't make any decisions for themselves. Everything is just served to them. I don't know. Maybe I'm feeling a little, it just might be today, but I'm feeling a little bit more like Leo at the beach than I am Michael. Than I am like the people in Wally. And I, yeah, I'm not like Michael Ian Black. Uh, that's a funny guy, but you've got to draw a line somewhere. And uh, I don't know. This, this From an investment perspective, the word that comes into my mind is complacency. It feels like there's just a lot of complacency everywhere. Consumers, investors. Paul, you did a great job, though, making the bull case for this deal. I really like what you said. I don't know. Those are my final thoughts. Society is in deep trouble. <laughs> Cruise industry looks interesting. Good luck to everyone out there. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, Paul, anything else? I, I would say I, I hear I hear where you're coming from, Mike. But if if my choice is between people seeing the greater world on board a cruise ship and people not seeing the world at all and just assuming things about it from home, I'll, I'll take the people that that go and see it with their own eyes. So bon voyage. Très <laughs> bien. <laughs> I, I think the you got a topper for that, Daniel. <laughs> well, I'm not going to try to top the cleverness, but the I agree that to me it seems like the travel market. Your point about 25 million people go on cruises, but billion people travel, or you know whatever the numbers. Like there is what we have in the modern age is a plethora of choice, and I think that's what you were getting at with this sort of need for an antidote to all the stuff that's out there. And I just think that's such a and it makes sense. Cruises don't fit everybody, but they serve, they do a good job at delivering on a, a certain product. And so it does, if you can get 90% of what you want at 5% of the work, that's probably pretty attractive. And so I think there's, I don't think cruise is the answer for everybody, but I do think that trend, it's not, I'm sure it's not just in the travel industry. I'm sure in other industries, ways to kind of get more precise information out of the noise that is the modern information age, I think is really going to be a interesting field for discovery and innovation. And so it, it, I, I didn't think of cruises as a way to fit into that, but it, I, I hear the argument. All right. I feel like we got it. <laughs> Want to end there? What's in there? What's in there? So. All right. Thank you, Paul. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. That was a thanks, guys. That was fun. That was our interview with Paul Brady of Condé Nast Traveler, which we recorded last Thursday. On Friday, I did a one-on-one -on -one call with William Mack, CFA of Spring Mill Research. It was his piece on Royal Caribbean that we originally reviewed last week, and he brings a nice contrast to Paul's perspective, even as they agree on a lot about these cruise companies. We'll get started with that in just a moment. But before we do, I just wanted to mention that Behind the Idea is brought to you by SA Essential. Essential is our newest subscription product and is currently available as Seeking Alpha Pro. It gives you access to our full archive of investment research on individual companies so you can get up to date on any stock you might follow. For example, William and I are about to discuss Carnival and Norwegian Cruise Line as well as Royal Caribbean. I have to admit that I walk away from these two interviews much more bullish on cruise lines than I was previously. But I'm not going to make an investment decision based on a positive impression on two interviews. I'll probably look at the filings on Edgar, read a couple 10Ks to get a feel for the industry, and look at the general numbers. Then I'll want to see what other investors have been saying about these companies throughout the cycle to see what the market knows and what it or I might be missing. Essential gives me the ability to do that. We have 11 articles from 8 different authors in the archive on Just Carnival in Just 2018 and over 200 articles on these three companies overall. Not everyone is still relevant, but the full set can give me a ton of valuable context, including comments from industry watchers, to understand these companies better. If you're interested in Essential, go to SeekingAlpha.com pro to check it out. 
It really is a must for your investment process. And with that said, let's blow the horn and get started on the second interview in today's podcast. We're going into the second half of our interview series for Royal Caribbean. We're talking to William Mack, CFA of Spring Mill Research. We had started reviewing Royal Caribbean thanks to his thesis on the company in light of their Silver Seas acquisition. And so we're going to be talking with him about his thesis and about his views about the cruise line industry in general. Just before we begin, disclosures here, William is long carnival cruise lines and is considering a position, a long position in Norwegian cruise lines and no position in Royal Caribbean. So with that said, William, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Daniel, for having me. So just to start, could you just give us a break, brief recap on your views on Royal in light, sort of over the long term and then in light of what just happened with the Silver Seas acquisition? Yeah, sure. Royal Caribbean is is the second largest cruise line in the world um, behind Carnival. It's a great company and it's had an absolutely terrific record of not only share performance over the cycle, but also fundamental economic performance, leading in, you know, among the leaders in the group in net yields, revenue growth. It has the highest operating margins in the industry, and it returns. It's got a very favorable record for returning capital to shareholders, especially over the last few years through a dividend and increasingly through share repurchases. So Royal Caribbean is a great company. However, a little context, the industry is ramping up its production of ships to be introduced over the next few years, such that uh, overall industry growth is over that time the highest at the highest level it's been in years, at around 6% or so through 2021. And Royal Caribbean is accelerating their growth through initially orders that they placed years ago on new ships. But recently, in June, the announcement of Silver Sea Cruises, that Silver Sea Cruise deal, um, which prompted my report on on Royal Caribbean comes at a time very late in the cycle and at a time when just after Royal Caribbean had improved its uh, its leverage ratios and its net debt to EBITDA had all had come down and it had been rewarded just last year by both of the major ratings agencies Standard Poor's and Moody's with an investment grade, um, which it was the first time that they'd been made investment grade in over this cycle and probably back to 2006 or 2007. But on the heels of that, which occurred last year, they're now, this deal would, which is expected to close sometime this year for Silver Seas, would get them back to the uh, higher end of those leverage ratios, and specifically with net debt to EBITDA, um, this will take them back to what both Standard Poor's and Moody's had said was the ceiling of their leverage ratios at that investment grade level of around three and a half times EBITDA. So, my title of the the uh, the report that I wrote um, recently on. Royal Caribbean Silver Seas was too much too late, too much new debt and too late in the cycle. So that's how I feel about Royal Caribbean. I lowered my target price to $95 a share versus current trading around $105 a share. So I think it's slightly overvalued. Okay. And it seems like the market has also been, it it seemed to receive it well, but then there was some other, Carnival had a issued a warning and that kind of took a hit and maybe reminded of the cycle. The cycle seems to be such a big piece here. How do you, you you're obviously, you, you have some bullishness for the industry as a whole. So how, do, how are you looking at the cycle and how are you sort of positioning, giving the thesis that we're late in the cycle and that there may be a turn coming up? Yeah, I'm, I'm 
I'm increasingly cautious the deeper we go into the cycle. And, you know, obviously, who's, who can say how the economy, especially the U.S. economy, where most of the cruise industry customers come from, because we can't predict cycles, it just behooves us to, to have a sense of history. And, you know, in the past, you know, this, this cycle, this economic cycle, ranks as now the second longest of all time. So I, we're obviously later in the cycle than earlier. Mm-hmm. And as, as much as I am bullish on the industry, sometime late last year, I put the golden age, I put out a report on Seeking Alpha, the golden age of cruise lines. You know, all indicators suggest that things are, you know, economic fundamentals for the, the major operators are terrific. But I think we have to look at the other side of the cycle, and and I'm I think that uh, you don't own every single cruise line, and you look for opportunities and have target prices where you might trade around, and in this case with Royal Caribbean, I think you you reduce your positions, take some gains in a name that's 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 done really well over the last you know ten years. So one thing, and that's really interesting, pointing out the golden age in cruise lines, because that's something we're also seeing based on different articles we read, and then also in our discussion with Paul Brady of Condé Nast Traveler talked about the just secular growth and number of people taking cruises and all this sort of thing. One thing that's really interesting to me about Silver Seas and the acquisition here is you mentioned in your thesis this idea of Royal Caribbean is already sort of contracting out builds for several years down the line. And that was something Mm -hmm. Paul mentioned as well, that builds are really, you're looking at 2022, 2023 is sort of the delivery times. And that would seem to me to make it more painful if something turns, because then you've already kind of committed yourself to these builds years out of time. But also, I almost wonder even if they're paying up here, if that maybe shortens, instead of having to build out new ships, and I know it's only a two-thirds stake and not a full purchase, but even if they're they're sort of buying some growth without having to wait for that long lag time, does that, do you buy that at all, that there's some benefit to acquiring instead of having to build out, or is there something I'm missing when I make that comparison? Sure, it, 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 it absolutely shortens, you know, buying versus building shortens, reduces the risk that you might have to face by taking delivery of those ships if you were to, to build them, you know, a, f- a few years out. And it has long lead times, as, as you suggest, and, and the economy doesn't uh, necessarily run at the same, doesn't at all run at the same pace or correlate with um, the orders on these ships. Having said that, the price that they paid discounts, they paid a 14 times multiple of EBITDA, which versus their own roughly 10 and a half of Royals own EBITDA suggests it's dilutive to its, its EBITDA multiple. And they were careful to point out in the call you know, it behooves them to to t- lay out the synergies to make that the deal for for Silver Seas accretive, not only on an EBITDA basis, right. EBITDA multiple basis, but on a EBITDA margin basis, basically cash flows. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that's discounted, and that's also gets back to why I talked about you know, the timing of this deal. I would have rather had. You know, the deal announced, you know, in hindsight, 2020, I would have rather had the deal announced five years ago. Right. Even if it were at a, and five years ago, the multiple would have been higher, but you would have had, again, in hindsight, more, much more runway to really argue how you can get those synergies. And the synergies they talked about are mostly cost synergies, mm-hmm. which, which are easier than to gain revenue synergies you have cannibalization and you have you know, basically this competition within the same itineraries where 
unless those itineraries grow faster than overall demand for cruises, then it, any synergies you get on the top line in those locales is, is going to be is going to be uh, basically all price, where you you're conceding some diminution in in actual occupancy for some of those ships. Um, I think it's a it's it's a it's a good deal, but it's it's not a great time to be to be doing the deal. Uh, and the last point with, with respect to price and and sort of the part of the market that Silver Seas addressed. One of the arguments we heard was that. Silver Seas is such a luxury player, and it really that opens up. A, you're talking about a lot less price sensitivity in theory as you get up there, and maybe that uh, you know I, I I don't want to build in if Royal Caribbean is not even willing to talk about sort of the revenue opportunity there. I don't want to sort of talk their book for them, but do you does that come into play as maybe? Uh, or you know I, I understand that your 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 concerns here maybe I'll ask it a different way would there be anything in terms of execution or in terms of how Royal Caribbean builds on their silver sea stake that would make you more interested in the company again is there anything they could do to kind of change the narrative now that they've made this deal I think we just need to see a passage of time and how they execute on the deal the industry doesn't work in a vacuum and you can't just buy something and assume that there's no there's no friction and you know continue to raise prices and get higher higher demand and occupancy right. without any any costs and, and I think also one of the costs and we also assume that you know luxury always does better in the downside of the cycle you could make that argument for last time around but in previous cycles, I haven't seen any data to suggest that that luxury does any better. In fact, I would argue, you know, logically, there's far less damage, potential damage to a brand, which is what we're talking about, the, the Silver Seas brand, which commands among the highest prices for cruises in the industry. You know, it's much easier to cut your prices on a on a cruise going in, especially if you are one of the biggest players, cut your prices on, on cruising into the Caribbean or around Mexico or, um, you know, these sort of mid mainline cruises on big ships without there being a whole lot of where you would get some occupancy increase and you would not have much damage to the brand itself. It's a different game when you're charging, you know, $1,000, $1,500 a day for cruises into the Galapagos Islands or, you mm -hmm. know, small, smaller boats going into the Galapagos Islands. It's a little less tangible to understand, and it takes longer to see the impact on the brand. But to say that, well, it's luxury always does better and there's no there's never any concessions in cruise prices and therefore you know the quality of the cruise is is not going to be compromised i don't think you can take that for granted okay that's fair so maybe stepping back a little bit from royal caribbean so what it, do you still feel that we're in the golden age of cruises or what do you what's your sort of view I mean, you've shared some things here, but what's your sort of view on the industry as a whole and where where are cruise lines headed? What what things are you watching for at this point in the cycle? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm, right now we're in the very middle of the high season for cruise ships mm -hmm. and all indications suggest, even though every one of the stocks is down, you know, double digits year to date, they've had tremendous runs. Mm -hmm. And I think that because of the long lead times in, in the booking curve when they're taking on guests and, and they give you pretty good visibility in, in the conference calls and all that, okay. we know with close to certainty that this, this year is going to be a very good year. And across the board, net yields will rise in the mid, single, mid if not high single digits for, for the industry. And I very much like 
maybe maybe your other guest talked about the long-term prospects for the industry. I'm I'm totally in agreement. I love the long-term prospects of the industry, but I think we have to look towards the other side of the cycle to get to those long-term mm-hmm. prospects. And I think that it just warrants a little bit of caution at this point. Okay. So what interests you about Carnival and about Norwegian as compared to Royal Caribbean right now? What what sort of distinguishes them and makes them more more intriguing at this point? Well, one, I like the market share of Carnival. It's the leader. They have roughly close to 50% share of the overall market. And they have a whole variety of brands, including their Seaborn brand, which is at the very high end. It doesn't compete directly with Silver Seas. They have the Canard line. It's got Queen Mary and Queen Elizabeth. And, you know, it. And it, everybody knows them for their large ships. Uh, those that do the Caribbean, so they've got them. You know, they've got those that serve the mass market. I like getting a lot of money back, especially late in the cycle, on dividends. Mm-hmm. And its its dividend is above three percent. And they're they're very aggressive on share buybacks, which doesn't hurt. And and I like their balance sheet. They have the best balance sheet in the industry. Mm-hmm. On the other end of the spectrum, Norwegian Cruise Lines is growing faster. It's smaller than Royal Caribbean in that it's got about 10% of the market versus Royal Caribbean's 24% or so. Mm-hmm. And it's adding about one ship a year, which means you know somewhere between 5 to 8% growth over the next few years. Mm-hmm. So they're... And they serve even more so than Royal Caribbean. They're more skewed to the luxury end of the market. And therefore, they have and will continue to have the highest yields of all. And at the same time, they have roughly the same debt levels as Royal Caribbean will have when they close this deal. I just feel like uh, Royal Caribbean is kind of stuck in the middle they're not as they have inferior debt ratios than carnival and they're smaller than carnival which i think will matter in the next downturn Mm -hmm. yet they're larger than they're larger than norwegian but they have growth rates that are inferior than norwegians and they have debt ratios that are no better than norwegians so i think i think i play the barbell here and sell the hold the the middle player and own the the stable largest and the faster growing smaller of the players okay that makes sense just when you when you talk about the yields you're talking about specifically the revenue yield per berth or, or could you just quickly define what you mean by the yields and why norwegians are higher for example yeah it's it, net yields is sort of the benchmark for the industry's organic growth it's not only occupancy and price but it's also takes into consideration some of the variable costs especially transportation and commissions that they pay for the travel agents and tra- when I say transportation uh, for the to, to actually get the cruise customers to the ports that they're sailing from so it's it's it reflects not only overall revenues but also takes into consideration how much of those revenues are left after the variable cost to be able to actually leverage the fixed cost. Right. And it's a very high fixed cost industry, so it's, it's important to consider those fixed costs. Okay. Okay. Great. Okay. Well, great. That's one, just the last question, sort of on the topic, but not on the financials. Do you tend to go on cruises or have you been on a cruise? And what's your sort of experience as a consumer? I've been on just one cruise. Uh, It was actually a Norwegian cruise ship uh, a number of years ago in the Mediterranean. Uh, I loved it. Okay. Gained about 10 pounds in a week. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, everything, that's something that's been interesting for us is just exploring that sort of cultural aspect of it. And yeah, it sounds like you eat well on those things. So. Okay. Well, absolutely. Yeah. There's everything to, uh, and and it's, you know, for most cruise ships, it's it makes sense on a 
versus most hotels or other vacations on a price basis. Right, yeah, that's something that I think, from my perspective, I underweight is just how much, it, it sort of combines the two big costs of your travel, which is your actual getting from A to B and your expenses as far as room and board. And so that, it sort of simplifies the traveler's life quite a lot, which can be, and can be price competitive at the same time. Absolutely. It's, it's the best of both worlds. Okay, great. Well, thank you. This was fabulous, William. I really enjoyed getting a chance to kind of drill down on the thesis more. And uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, both for Royal Caribbean and the other companies in the industry. Yeah, I, I look forward to, uh, to how, it, how it does play out and keep an eye out for my Norwegian piece. Thanks so much, Daniel. All right. Thanks so much, William. Have a great rest of your day and a great weekend. Have a great weekend, too. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Behind the Idea. We really appreciate your support. If you're enjoying what we're doing or want to tell us what you don't like, please leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. We read each one. And for example, we're investing in better equipment and sound based on your feedback. So we hope you'll hear improvements there. Tweet at M. Brooks Taylor or at Daniel Seeking A with suggestions or questions for Behind the Idea. We're going with an investment idea related to the World Cup next week, so make sure you tune in. And have a great rest of this week. Thanks again. This is Seeking Alpha Production, and we hope to have you next time on Behind the Idea. What a beach. So after I bought my very first yacht, we made to sail right away.